Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello again and welcome back to the Heredity Podcast, this being the April edition of 2014. In this episode, we'll look at the genetic diversity of the iconic Australian koala and study divergence with gene flow in the highly speciose chipmunk. I'm Jeff Marsh. A common theme on the Heredity podcast is that of speciation, how new species come about. Classical models usually involve diverging lineages requiring an absence of gene flow to go on to become new species. If diverging lineages do start swapping genes again, their differences are lost and they meld back into one. But there's been increasing evidence over the last two decades that an important driver of biological diversity is something called divergence with gene flow. In these cases, the divergence of lineages occurs faster than the completion of reproductive isolation, and this could be especially relevant in rapid radiations where several lineages have multiple opportunities over time to overlap in their range and swap genes. Jack Sullivan from the University of Idaho and his team were especially interested in one such radiation, the surprisingly speciose chipmunk. Whilst the 20-odd species of chipmunks are clearly morphologically and ecologically differentiated, they don't seem to have kept their genes to themselves. Here's Jack. Speciation can and very frequently does occur in the face of hybridization between diverging lineages. The modern synthesis in the 1940s kind of led to the emergence of the biological species concept where diverging lineages pretty much require the absence of gene flow between them, that is, the absence of hybridization after the speciation process initiates, for divergence to continue, and that if hybridization occurs, the expectation has been that it would lead to homogenization of the diverging lineages and essentially a halt to speciation. Over the course of the last 20 years, increasing evidence has been discovered that suggests that it's very frequent that hybridization between diverging lineages continues for much longer after the initial divergence phase than kind of the classical allopatric models of speciation hypothesized. Tell me about that. What, what sort of species are we talking about and how extensive is the evidence? When plants hybridize, it's very common that intermediate morphologies are found. And so plant hybridization has been a subject of study for decades the study of hybrid zones in animals has usually focused on the lack of hybrid fitness and integration of genes from one species to another across just a very, very narrow hybrid zone. And so as more and more people began applying genetic data to animal species, we've discovered that hybridization often occurs in the absence of intermediate hybrids. And that's what's going on in the chipmunks that we've been studied. I hadn't actually realized that chipmunks encompassed several species. Right, right. 
chipmunks actually represent a very recent radiation on the order of 23 to 25 species. Two of those species are very widespread. There's one across much of, of Eurasia, the Siberian chipmunk, and one across most of eastern North America, uh, the eastern chipmunk. And in Western North America, there's a radiation that contains 23 or so species, many of which are very narrowly distributed and are kind of habitat specialists, and a few of which are broadly distributed and are kind of ecological generalists. Okay, so especially then you just mentioned in Western North America, there are tens of species which coexist. Are they partitioned in any way? So they actually are partitioned. They're classic examples of niche partitioning. And if one were to trap in the eastern Sierras across an elevational transect, one would get four different chipmunks associated with four different kind of habitat types. This has been well known since the 70s. And lots of really excellent uh, removal trapping studies at those kind of ecotone boundaries have been done that shows that if you remove say, lodgepole chipmunks from the bottom end of their distribution, yellow pine chipmunks, the species that occurs below them, will actually move up. So it's a great example of competitive exclusion and niche partitioning. But there is evidence, right, that they, they do mate with each other? Certainly. I, I guess the term that's often used is contiguous allopatry, which means that even though they niche partition, they come into contact at the edges of these kind of ecosystem boundaries or these habitat boundaries. But how do you then distinguish that from this phenomenon that you're studying, which is divergence with gene flow? Well, it turns out that we need to look at genetic data. So the taxonomic character that's typically been used to delineate chipmunk species is their genital morphology. And their genital morphologies don't show any intermediates at these contact zones where two species come together. But if we look at mitochondrial DNA sequences or some other uh, genetic data, we'll actually see that in spite of the fact that there's ecological and morphological differences, some genes are actually crossing the species boundaries. And, of course, the only way that that can happen is through hybridization. Okay, so somehow their, their genes are getting mixed up, but that's not having an effect on these phenotypic characteristics that you use to distinguish between the species. That's right, and that's one of the really cool and interesting things about these emerging models of speciation called divergence with gene flow. The idea is that portions of the genome may be able to cross species boundaries, and other portions of the genome may not be able to cross species boundaries. And presumably, under some early formalizations of this model of speciation, those portions of the genome that can't cross species boundaries are ones that mediate hybrid fitness and things like that. First of all, tell me what you were doing here. You've written a review uh, which is kind of summarizing a couple of decades of research into this animal system. So I started studying chipmunks not because I was interested in speciation, but because I was interested in the manner in which genetic variation is structured across geography. And so we started looking at, at patterns of genetic variation in a couple of species of chipmunks that occur in, in my part of, the, the, of North America in kind of the inland northwest. And we discovered, actually, that those two species occasionally hybridize. And that's not something that was ever suspected based on, you know, basically 150 years of, of chipmunk research. And so because these two species that happen to occur in my backyard hybridize, the obvious question is, 
is hybridization occurring across the 23 species? And if it is, how much of an effect does it have? And if it isn't, why is the situation that I've discovered different than the situation for the other 23 species? That started us on basically a couple of decades worth of trapping chipmunks, identifying them based on their key taxonomic characters, and sequencing early on mitochondrial DNA, and uh, more recently looking at microsatellite markers. And we currently have our first kind of genome scale scans for some hybridizing chipmunks. And so at the genetic level then, what does divergence with gene flow look like? So we can look at things like microsatellites and estimate gene flow between species. Very often it's very low. Occasionally it's higher than uh, we would expect based on kind of classical models of speciation. We can also look now at kind of genome scale data where we can look at thousands and thousands of genes and do some simulation-based analyses to assess which of those genes are crossing species boundaries versus which of those are not. Is the idea then that this radiation, these these twenty odd species of chipmunk, formed by something along the lines of divergence with gene flow? Well, so that's the hypothesis that we've been testing. One of the things that I think makes the system interesting is that divergence with gene flow has been studied a great deal in sister species pairs where the situation is really pretty simple. And we can actually do that with chipmunks, but we can also study it in this rapid radiation where we have different combinations of hybridizing entities that have come into contact periodically throughout the two and a half million years or so since the divergence of this group of chipmunks. Do you think that this is limited to chipmunks? Oh, of course not. No. Examples are emerging for lots of other mammal systems and lots of other uh, vertebrate systems. Uh, Lots of examples have emerged from invertebrate systems, and actually plant systematists have known about hybridization, you know, for, 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 for centuries. In a nutshell, then, how do you suppose it is that genes go from one of these species to another without the species differences sort of breaking down and then, you know, forming this hybrid? So the idea then is that differentiation in the face of hybridization is maintained by recombination and selection. So selection can operate on one part of the genome, but because of independent assortment and recombination, other parts of the genome are immune from that selection. And so it's the other parts of the genome that are allowed to back cross and transgress across species boundaries, whereas the genes that are mediating a lower fitness in hybrids don't cross the species boundaries. Presumably, you will never find evidence of introgression in... Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. 
Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. The genes that dictate penis morphology in these species. Well, that certainly is one of the hypotheses, and so um, one of the next things that we want to do is generate some F1 hybrids in the lab and look at their penis morphologies, look at their reproductive signaling, their vocalizations, and assess whether or not there are intermediates in those F1s for these traits that we think are mediating speciation. Would you say then that we need to sort of add a subsection in the textbooks on the the chapters on speciation? Well, I think that the textbooks will eventually be revised to include divergence with gene flow. I think also that although this might take longer, the, the textbooks will ultimately be revised to address more than just the classical biological species concept and think about species as lineages that are diverging, perhaps due to reproductive isolation, and perhaps in the face of a lack of reproductive isolation. That was Jack Sullivan from the University of Idaho. The koala bear is an icon of Australia's unique fauna. But this tree-living, eucalyptus-loving marsupial has had a fairly checkered past with humans. They've fallen prey to hunting, habitat loss, urbanisation and disease, most commonly a form of chlamydia, and their population has severely dwindled. They're currently listed as vulnerable in two states. Aims to conserve the koala and boost their population were in some instances based on translocation events from severely bottlenecked populations, and as such, the genetic diversity as measured by neutral genetic markers is worryingly low. Damien Higgins from the University of Sydney and his team set out to measure the levels of genetic diversity in adaptive parts of the genome, specifically in MHC2 genes. These have an important functional role in immunity and adaptation to new environments, and as such will hopefully tell us more about the level of threat posed to this species. The koala's a marsupial, of course. It exists all down the east coast of Australia. It lives on eucalypts primarily, and a few other species as well. So give me a sort of potted history of our interaction with this species. They were actually hunted quite heavily back around the end of the 1800s and early 1900s, and there was a lot of changes around that time as well in a lot of their habitat. There was a lot of land clearing. Um, There was quite a lot of disease occurring, which may have been due to the introduction of chlamydia to the populations at the time, and so the populations went through a lot of decline. Down in Victoria, they've got quite an interesting situation where most of their populations have now been built up to reasonable numbers because of a very large translocation program that they ran for a number of years. And the animals that were used for that program originated from some very bottlenecked populations of koalas that were introduced to um, some islands down there and then translocated back across the state. In the north, the impacts on koalas are coming very much from development and, and loss of habitat. And of course, along with that, there comes a lot of encroachment of urbanisation and things that go along with it. So motor vehicle trauma is very common. Attacks by dogs is very common. And then, of course, all the effects of degrading habitat, habitat fragmentation and disease that runs along with it, which is our main interest. 
So currently there's still an array of risks facing the koala. Absolutely. The, the koala's just been listed as vulnerable in two of our states, in Queensland and New South Wales. Um, but, so they're the northern two states um, where these processes that I just mentioned are ongoing. And there have been studies from neutral genetic markers showing that in many cases they suffer from low genetic diversity. Yeah, that's right. And this work that we did, and this is the, the doctoral work of one of our group, Quinton Lau, showed that uh, at MHC markers we've got some fairly similar general patterns to what we've seen in neutral markers as well. So both functional genes and the neutral genes have been affected by this. And I guess it really highlights the impact of past management and past conflicts, I suppose, between humans and koalas has, has had on their genetic makeup. For anyone who hasn't heard of the MHC genes, what are they thought to control? Basically, they code for proteins that will bind to different antigens which cause disease and they present those to the adaptive immune system. So they're really a gateway between being able to recognise a lot of the agents that cause infectious disease in animals. Yeah, and you've already mentioned that there are a number of diseases which really do pose a significant threat to this animal. Yes, the most common of those is chlamydial disease. It's actually quite similar in terms of the disease that it causes to chlamydia in humans. It's a different species of chlamydia and it causes significant mortality in a lot of populations as well. And so the aim of your study then was to see whether the patterns of genetic diversity in these MHC genes matched up with those studies from the neutral markers. That's right, yes. We wanted to see whether the past management of koalas had had an impact on these genes, which it certainly appears that it has. And we wanted to get an idea of how much diversity was actually there and where that diversity is. One of the interesting findings that we've had is that within the northern populations, um, there are quite a lot of variants that are specific to certain populations. So we have population-unique variants among the ones that we've studied. And I think this just highlights the importance of conserving some of those local populations because the populations are becoming quite small and fragmented and, and local extinctions are becoming reasonably common. So tell us about the distribution of the variants you found across the different populations and what that means for the koala. The southern populations have been through a series of bottlenecks and, and the populations that have been translocated from and spread right across Victoria have been founded on, it's commonly said, as few as three or four animals. So it's not surprising that there's limited diversity across the state of Victoria from that regard. So the importance of the finding in the Victorian koalas is that we have a very limited number of variants down there, but each of those variants is actually quite different from the other, which presumably gives those animals a reasonable scope in terms of responding to agents of disease. In the north, we had a much greater array of variants. We generally assume is going to give those animals an increased ability to respond to infectious agents, but probably the most important aspect of this is that the animals in the north are likely to be able to adapt more readily to new pathogens as they come across them. So one of the concerns that we have in the southern populations is perhaps that if they uh, become exposed to a new agent of disease to which they haven't seen before, then they may have limited ability to actually adapt to that. So the, the limited diversity can be an advantage at times when you're responding simply to one really dominant pathogen. But what it doesn't give you is the ability to adapt to new pathogens as they arise. And is there any evidence that this lower genetic diversity in the south is causing more disease? 
the difficulty with this question is that we have a very limited number of really comprehensive and comparable disease surveys across the country, but there's no real reports at this stage that there's an increased prevalence of disease down in the south. In fact, anecdotally, people tend to say that there's an increased level of disease in the north of the country, but whether that's a factor of the increased habitat disturbance that we have up there, whether it's a factor of the types of pathogens that are around up there, the types of vectors that are around in the north of the country where it's warmer and potentially more humid and, and more arthropod or, or tick vectors around, we really don't know. Our knowledge of disease in, in Australian wildlife is a young field, um, so we're still learning an awful lot about it. So what do you suppose will be the consequence of lower MHC diversity in these southern areas? I don't think we can really say at this point in time. I think there's more work that needs to be done in terms of just understanding the ecology of koalas and how they interact with disease. They may be a species that is able to get by on a relatively low level of diversity at these genes. They are a solitary species. Solitary species tend to have less pathogens circulating around, I suppose, because they're coming in less contact with each other. But then on the other side of things, Koalas are exposed to a range of ectoparasites that are able to transmit pathogens and also one of their major diseases is sexually transmitted, which of course all koalas need to mate. So there are certainly ways that disease agents can be transmitted between koalas in both the north and the south. So I think this is one of those questions that, that needs to remain open and as we learn more about the ecology of disease in koalas, we'll be able to put that together with the information that we've got here to build a more complete picture. Finally, how do you think these results will feed into the future conservation strategies of this iconic species? I think one of the really key things that comes out of this study is the diversity that exists between small fragmented local populations and the importance of preserving a lot of those small remnant populations that exist. We have a lot of fragmented populations around the country that are under a lot of pressure, of course, and it's apparent from this study that there's quite a lot of genetic diversity within those populations that we really need to hang on to. That was Damien Higgins from the Faculty of Veterinary Science at the University of Sydney. So that's it for this Heredity podcast. As always, we'll be back next month. I'm Jeff Marsh. Thanks for listening. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.